all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. You know, we're talking about urinary tractants this morning and uh, urinary tract infections this morning. There's a common source of fever and urination pain in children, but how do you know when they are having them? Because those little critters, uh, meaning children, don't always tell you that. Do they always need an antibiotic? What about recurrent infections? We'll be discussing all these issues and more this morning, and we'll have plenty of time to take your calls, maybe touch on some bedwetting issues at the end of the program. As usual, uh, you can reach us this morning by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can send us an email to kids at mpbonline.org. I hope everybody's staying dry this morning. A lot of rain out there. It's, uh, I was just telling somebody outside, you know, it looks like some good Scottish weather in Mississippi and the south. Uh, this sort of uh, that cold, wet feeling uh uh, when you go outside, even if you're not going to get in the rain, you're going to get wet from all this humidity. Uh, temperatures changing rapidly. Just your typical January in the South. Um, hope you had a great uh, holiday season uh, in the last couple of weeks and had some time to spend with your family. Uh, it's in the news, speaking of spending time with your family, I just ran across this app right uh, this morning. Uh, and you've you've heard us on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens mention a couple of different resources for your family and your kids. One that is absolutely top-notch is called HealthyChildren.org. That's all one word together, HealthyChildren.org. And they have some fantastic things that you can, uh, that you can look up on there. If you have uh, questions uh, about what's going on with the health of your family, uh, some preventative me- measures. They have recalls of all kinds of different um, uh, childhood toys and and uh, devices and those kinds of things. But one that sort of struck me, you know, if if you're like me, there are times when you uh, either yourself or have family members who struggle with the use of electronic media, with your iPhone, with a tablet, with electronic devices. And there's a lot of evidence that's growing every day about the harmful effects of those and how it sort of erodes relationships that you have with your kids. It can affect everything from kids' sleep to socialization patterns, uh, normal development, um, lots of uh, fine and gross motor skills, uh, obesity that's impacted. So there's lots of different things that that it can certainly impact. And we're not saying that, uh, you know, devices are or electronic media is all bad. Certainly it's good, both for educational means, for uh, recreational means. 
However, it's probably a good idea to have a plan. And it's very interesting. I always have found this interesting. You know, Steve Jobs, who gave us the iPhone, good or bad, if you're, you know, a fan, uh, you know, it's interesting what he is was reported uh, to do with his own family. Like his own family, they had uh, screen-free times when they didn't have iPhones, particularly at mealtime. They weren't allowed. Uh, they weren't allowed in, in uh, certain areas of the house, like bedrooms, during certain times, just sort of disconnect. And those things are healthy for us. You need to find some time to do that. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of businesses have sort of, in uh, jobs, sort of necessitate that you stay connected. That's sort of an expectation. Uh, but there are some good times when you can disconnect, and I would encourage you to do that, to seek uh, that. I know I struggle with that myself, but look for some time to disconnect every day and and also uh, some blocks of time that you might do that. Well, HealthyChildren.org, I mentioned earlier, they have they uh, brush, uh, touch on this issue. They've had several articles in the past. They had this really neat uh, family media plan that you can do free of charge. You don't have to, uh, they're not going to share the data or anything like that, but it's really just a, sort of a checklist that you can go over with your family of some recommendations that you come up with yourself about you and your family. So you put your kids in there, just uh, put their first names in, give it a family name and uh, put their ages in. And then each heading is followed by examples and suggestions of different things that you can customize to your own family. For instance, when you look at uh, one of these sections, it says screen-free zones. So uh, the recommendation would be that you have some places in your house that are zones that you you know don't have don't allow phones. One might be the bedroom, uh, the bedroom of the child, uh, and that includes recharging phones, uh, helping them to avoid the temptation to use those phones if they're not in the bedroom. They're not going to do that. Uh, maybe the kitchen or dining room or areas that you want to come together as a family that you can you know check that box and say. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a zone that we don't want to have those electronic devices in or come up with something else. There's actually sections in here that you can sort of write those uh, write those down. Screen free time. Uh, are there certain times of the day that you don't want to be using that? Maybe that's not just in your home, but in the car, except for long trips while at school, of course, during, you know, I know a lot of schools are sort of leveraging devices and media to try to uh, to use that on, on, um, as, as tools. But uh, other than that, you might want to select some of these times, maybe meal times again. Um, and then, you know, there may be some uh, absolutely no, I'm not going to do this, you know, like while driving, don't text. Uh, using a cell phone while driving certainly can be a distractor, particularly to a teenager uh, who's just learning to drive. Uh, curfews for those. And then choosing what you do on that device. So what kind of media are you going to look at? You know, we have uh, just on an iPhone alone about 80,000 apps that are available. And it seems like every day there's a new one out there. Uh, uh, excuse me, 80,000 apps that are educational, at least labeled as educational. But there's uh, not really a whole lot of, of research documenting, you know, what's the actual quality of those so parents, well, you know, I always recommend to my parents that you be involved with your kids' apps, that you check them out, that you have a system set up uh, where they have to ask for those apps, that they get sort of uh, vetted through you and sent to you first for approval, uh, and that you actually look at that. And then another way, you know, the diversification of media. This is a big issue with adults right now when there's so many things that are out there that we have such, uh, you know, rapid access 
to uh, to news that may not be validated in such a way. We have social media that you know the push is to get information out as quick as possible without having a lot of the uh, the uh, older methods of making sure that that's that that's true. Those are great uh, lessons that you can teach your kids as well. Um, and then co-viewing, co-playing some of those, those are good. If you want to, you know, uh, you know, want to play words with friends, I know that's old now, but words with friends with your kids, uh, and they're older, you can certainly do that. My, my son came in, my oldest son, he's 16, came in the other night and, uh, so proud. My wife and I were talking about this. He sat down and he said, Hey, uh, break out the dominoes. I want to play some, uh, some, some dominoes. And, uh, uh, just sort of cool to hear him say that, not uh, you know on the phone or anything. Uh, those can be times that you can really bond with your family. So check this out on healthychildren.org, free app that you can go to uh, to try to come up with some ways that you're not your life's not dominated by your devices, by media time, and how you can teach your kids how to use that better. And uh, we, we touch on that from time to time. We'll probably deal with that as a whole different program in the future, you know, about some ways you can do that. I know some of our listeners have called in with some particular um, suggestions or things that they've done to, to limit that. So just something for you on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. But today we're talking about urinary tract infections. And this is a common thing that uh, that children, particularly younger children, can uh, can have that uh, is a frequent source of fever uh, in kids. And uh, you don't really think about a urinary tract infection, but younger kids, you know, as we mentioned earlier, sort of uh, alluded to this, they don't really tell you their symptoms can be vague, uh, if, particularly if they can't talk yet about some of the common ways that, that you have urinary tract infections. Older kids and adults, particularly uh, women who have frequent UTIs, there's some great evidence in adults that, you know, if they have them frequently and they have the same symptoms, they come to you. That's actually pretty good uh, as an indicator that you can go ahead and treat them, uh, even without drawing a lot of lab tests, uh, just because the symptoms are very specific for each individual person. Uh, you know, if you have a patient that comes in and says they are an adult and they're a young uh, or they're an older adolescent and say, you know, I get a urinary tract infection about once or twice a year, same kind of symptoms this time, you can usually go ahead and treat them with an antibiotic without doing a whole lot of lab tests. But if you have a two-month-old, of course, that's not going to be the issue. So how prevalent are urinary tract infections? So if, you know, there's different age groups uh, that have these, uh, but overall, uh, for infants and young children, uh, if they're less than two years of age, uh, you're looking at about every child with a fever, about 7% of those with, that present with a fever, and a fever would be anything over 100.4 degrees, uh, would be caused by urinary tract infection. Um, most of these are self-limiting, or at least they're, they're uh, treatable with antibiotics. They don't have any complications, not self-limiting. Um, but if you go, you know, much beyond that, there's certainly different, there's, there's less of a chance of a urinary tract infection. However, there are subgroups that have big differences. Uh, we don't really know the reason for all of these differences. The, probably the biggest one is girls get urinary tract infections more than boys do. And most people think this has to do with the shorter distance to the bladder, uh, with the uh, female urethra being shorter uh, than the male urethra, with the location of that, uh, you know, is a little bit closer in females to the, uh, to, the, to the anus, and you can have all kinds of bacteria that can sort of uh, colonize that area, or they can uh, get into the, uh, the opening of the, 
of the urethra uh, where urine comes out of the body and and uh, it can track back up into the bladder. Um, but, you know, girls get it more than uncircumcised boys, I should say. Now, circumcision uh, certainly is not uh, a medical necessity. However, there is about a four- to eight-fold increase uh, more UTIs in boys who are not circumcised. And again, it's thought that you probably have bacteria that are underneath the foreskin that are in constant contact with the, the meatus. That's the opening from the urethra to the outside uh, where urine comes out, and it probably tracks back up into the bladder. Uh, other differences for uh, some unknown reason. So uh, Caucasians get more uh, urinary tract infections than non-Caucasians. It's about a two to four fold increase there. Uh, we mentioned more females than males. Um, in uh, you know, in uh, um, certain populations, you can have higher uh, higher incidences of of uh, urinary tract infections. But overall, you're looking at, you know, if you look at, uh, at a white female uh, who is a young uh, child, less than two years of age, and they have a temperature greater than or equal to 102, uh, statistically about 16% of them are going to have uh, urinary tract infections. And then as you get older, it, it generally goes down to around 7 to 8%. We're talking about urinary tract infections and bedwetting today on uh, Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We're going to dive deeper into this issue in just a second, but plenty of time for you to call in if you have a question about uh, our topic this morning or any other health topic that relates to the health of your kids and family. You can reach us by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. We'll be right back after this break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and we're talking about urinary tract infections this morning and how prevalent they are in younger children and Maybe what you can do to prevent those and some of the different aspects of that. Just mentioning that there are differences. You know, some kids get them more than others. Certainly females more than males, white females more than, than uh, non-white uh, uh, children. Other things that can increase the risk of urinary tract infections. Some of them are things that you can't really change. Like there's one that... Uh, Basically, if we think about the anatomy of how urine is formed and how it gets out of the body, basically you have two kidneys uh, that are deep inside the body, more so, more towards the back of the body, about a, a third of the way up from your pelvis uh, in your uh, abdomen. And uh, those kidneys do lots of things. They filter out different things. They help to control blood pressure. They help to control salt 
uh, and other electrolyte uh, regulation in the body, wondrous organs. Uh, and then what they do with everything that's left over that's, uh, that after doing all those jobs is urine. And urine is drained down through a tube, one from each kidney, uh, that come together at the urinary bladder, which is lower in the, in the pelvis. And uh, the bladder is sort of a collection organ. So it's distensible, meaning it can blow up like a balloon as it fills up with more urine. And normally there are little valves at the uh, at the at the where those uh, those connections from the kidneys to the bladder, uh, those are called uh, the um, uh, uh, urethral uh, uh, urethral valves. And those valves uh, can be overdeveloped or underdeveloped in some some situations. But if they're faulty, basically what you get is you get reflux. You get uh, that urine that normally collects in the bladder that may go back up those tubes, and the longer it sits there, uh, if you have uh, in, in, if you have some some reflux, it backs up in such a sense that you can get an infection up towards the kidneys, um, and that is a common uh, that is a relatively common cause of uh, of urinary tract infections. But that's called you may see it as VUR vesicourethral reflux. And then of course that urine normally it's after it's in the bladder and the bladder. Uh, it gets uh, distended uh, to the point there's muscles are in the wall of that bladder that then expel the urine uh, through the urethra, which is the connection to the outside of the body. Uh, and that, uh, as you know, over time, kids learn to control that, those muscles that, uh, that open and close that valve uh, from, the, uh, from the bladder. Um, if something's wrong with that system, uh, like uh, the reflux I mentioned, or you might have some other problems, and you can certainly have frequent, more frequent uh, urinary tract infections as bacteria sort of track back up uh, through there. Let's go to our first caller is Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Hi. Hi, Dr. Jimmy. I, I'd like to just tell you about when my daughters had two little girls, and when they were little, they loved to take bubble baths. Sure. And uh, they... but. I noticed that they were having urinary tract infections. I didn't associate the two until I took them to the doctor, and we figured out that the, he said stop the bubble baths, and the urinary tract infection stopped. Yep. It, because the pH, I don't know what it did to their urinary tract or something, but when we stopped the bubble baths, the urinary tract infection stopped. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the questions we get. Actually, we ask some of those questions when uh, when patients come in uh, and their parents bring them in. They say, you know, uh, little Susie's been burning when she's she's complaining that it hurts uh, when she urinates if they're old enough to talk. And we'll ask some of those questions. And one of the questions is, uh, do you take baths? Do you take bubble baths? And there's two different situations that can come out of that if you if you have problems with the bubble bath. One is a condition called urethritis, and that just means that the urethra, again, that's the tube but that connects the bladder to the outside of the body, uh, it can become inflamed at the opening. Uh, it's, it has the cells that line it uh, create this mucous membrane, just means it's sort of slick and allows uh, for urine to freely flow out of it. Uh, but that mucous membrane, the, the normal coating on, on it can be broken down by different things. And bubble baths uh, sort of act like a surfactant. They, uh, they help break down a lot of oily compounds, and it can irritate that opening. So urethritis is not a true infection, uh, but it's, it's, a, uh, it's an irritation, and it can have the same symptoms. And oftentimes kids will say it burns, it hurts, 
Uh, they're urinating more frequently. Uh, just because they may have even some spasm of the muscles that control that. So that's one situation. Uh, and basically, you you stop doing the bubble baths and it gets better. There's not really anything you can do uh, to put any medication directly on the, the affected area, but it, it is sort of self-limiting after you get them out of the bubble bath. The second uh, scenario is that you can have irritation to the point where you might have, you know, a breakdown in the in the wall of that urethra, and then you can get some, you can get a true infection there. Either way, uh, if you cut out the bubble baths, usually those symptoms go away. So, uh, thanks for sharing that, Sue. I was going to talk about that later, but you brought it up, which I love I that when that happens. Uh, but yeah, that's a common thing, and. Um, it, you know, it's so much fun when you have those bubble baths, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, kid pictures of, they got bubbles all over them and you're having a blast blowing those things around with small kids, but, uh, uh, it, it can cause some problems. Not in everybody. I wouldn't say don't ever do a bubble bath, but if you're having those symptoms, particularly in females and males, they don't have it as, have the problems as much. Uh, but, uh, females, that's a common one is sort of a, bubble bath urethritis or a uh, possible urinary tract infection. Uh, that does bring up another thing, you know, older adolescents, of course, there's other issues here, but sexual activity uh, can be another one. If there's some irritation uh, during sexu- uh, sexual intercourse with the urethra, with the opening there of the, of the urethra to the outside in females, certainly that can that can cause uh, a urinary tract infection, or at least uh, have a sort of be a risk factor for a urinary tract infection as well. So uh, we're talking about urinary tract infections here on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, and uh, plenty of time for uh, for you to call in if you uh, give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or you can uh, you can email us at kids at MPB online. Dot org. Uh, good question came to us too. Uh, can males get UTIs? Can they get urinary tract infections? Absolutely, they can. And particularly if they have, if their plumbing is a little bit different. So if uh, if they have vesicourethral reflux, that's those two little valves that uh, sit at the back of the bladder. Uh, they can be uh, more at risk for that. There's other congenital abnormalities of the urinary tract that they can certainly. Uh, uh, put them at risk. And then sometimes you'll just have a male for whatever reason that gets a UTI. Again, it's about, you know, females get about two to four times more urinary tract infections than males, but it is possible. Um, but that's, that's a, you know, that's something to look out for that doesn't, just because you're male, that doesn't protect you against that. Um, uh, if you have a little, you know, baby boy, that's a, that's a possibility. And because of that, uh, particularly if we have limited symptoms, if we just have a fever, which we often do if they're less than two months of age, uh, one of the things that we'll get is a a urine sample uh, to help diagnose that. And I was going to bring up that, you know, just how do you diagnose this? So what are some of the common symptoms? If your child can vocalize, if they can tell you what's going on, uh, we touched on these earlier, but basically burning on urination uh, they may uh, urinate frequently uh, just because of the irritation there. It feels like that they need to urinate. They may even have some incontinence. They may uh, have been continent. They may be uh, diaper trained, I mean, uh, 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 trained uh, to come out of diapers and they're uh, not having any problems. And then all of a sudden they sort of regress with that. Um, those are all common symptoms of a urinary tract infection. Um, and uh, certainly there's other 
uh, different types of scenarios that put them a little bit at risk and risk factors for that. But uh, those are some of the most common symptoms. Let's go to Will in Hattiesburg. Good morning, Will. I appreciate your call this morning. Hi there. Uh, my question is, well, really, I have worked with people with special needs the last few years, and some of my clients, actually, well, they're my friends as well, have required the use of direct catheterization. Yep. And and if you don't, if you're not very careful with, like, the sterile field, if you don't use the iodine just so or whatever, they can easily develop uh, a UTI. And I was just wondering, what's an even better way, you know, to, to minimize the development of UTI in those types of situations. Yeah. Thank you. So, so thanks, Will. That's a that's a good, and that's not a you know insignificant number of people that have to do that. So, what Will's talking about is uh, in some people, particularly in, in some kids that have some special chronic healthcare needs where they can't go to the bathroom, they may have differences in their anatomy, they may have uh, cerebral palsy, they may have a bladder that doesn't empty like it should. And they need to be catheterized. They need to be catheterized. What catheterized means is you stick a little tube back up the urethra into the bladder, and when you do that, it allows it to drain out. There are two ways to do that. You can do that um, with an indwelling catheter. That's a catheter that stays in the bladder. Or you can do what's called an, sometimes an in and out catheterization, which means you just periodically throughout the day. In the same way that you know you would go to the bathroom several times a day, that you would urinate, you would do a, a catheter uh, catheterization and not leave it in. Basically, stick the tube in. When the bladder uh, empties out all the way, you uh, pull the tube out. And uh, you know, did he did mention that you need to sterilize things appropriately? You know, we think. Uh, after we take a bath, uh, or particularly a shower, after we wash our hands, that we clear the body of all bacteria on the surface of the skin. And while you can cut down on that, the reality of it is, particularly in the inguinal area, in the perineal area, uh, where you have the, you know, where where you, uh, all the business is coming out, uh, that can have a lot of bacteria there. And uh, those bacteria sit on the surface of the skin and any kind of foreign object that you introduce back up into the bladder can carry those bacteria back up into the bladder where you can have a, a bladder infection. Uh, so what is recommended, what we teach uh, parents and caregivers to do is to uh, sterilize that area in the best way that they can. Um, now, you, you're not going to eliminate every bacteria, but using proper technique with you know different sterilization uh, uh, wipes or, uh, or materials or, or liquids. Uh, basically, you wipe out as many bacteria as you can before you catheterize the patient. What we do know is that indwelling catheters, catheters that stay in uh, permanently, in the, or at least semi-permanently, every couple of weeks they may be changed, that those uh, tend to have more of a risk of urinary tract infections because those bacteria can track back up. They've got that pathway, that unnatural tube that they can that sort of allows them to uh, to a- access to the uh, to the bladder. The in and out catheterization, the periodic catheterization, carries a decreased risk. Uh, again, it's not a hundred percent decrease, um, and sometimes you just have you know some kids will get it more than others. But using proper sterile technique when you do that. Uh, can be one way to cut down on it, but you don't totally eliminate that. And the other thing is making sure if they're incontinent of urine, a lot of times they'll be incontinent of stool. 
and um, you know trying to make sure that you clean them appropriately, that you don't wipe towards the urethra. There's not a whole lot of data on that, but basically you're bringing all those bacteria that are in the stool in that area of the uh, the opening of the urethra, and that can allow them to track back up. So you'd want to uh, make sure that you wipe the other way uh, when you do that. But that's that is a population that does have because of uh, you know frequent catheterization with the foreign body up into the uh, bladder certainly puts them at a little bit more risk uh, for infections. So if you do have an infection, um, what do you do? What do you do to, to really? What does a physician do? to make sure that, that that is what's causing the problem. So in younger kids, again, we'll look for a, a couple of different ways. If they're really young and they have a fever, then we might draw some blood work. Uh, that allows us to look at the white cell count in their blood, which should appropriately go up, should increase when they get an infection uh, in any uh, part of the body. But uh, if they have a urinary tract infection, sometimes that'll be elevated. There's a couple of other markers in, of an inflammation that we get to sometimes. There's more and more evidence that things like uh, there's a fancy, fancy one called procalcitonin uh, that's uh, sometimes used that if it's increased that it's a good marker of, of infection. Um, and then we'll get an actual urine sample. Now, uh, you know, a lot of patient, uh, a lot of parents have some concern about this, particularly for younger kids. Now, we mentioned, you know, that insertion of the tube, that catheter into the bladder to get urine uh, to allow it to come out. We actually use that for diagnosis of a urinary tract infection also. And the reason we do that is that getting the urine sample is one of the best ways to see what type of bacteria that we're looking at, because there can be several. And that allows us to really customize appropriately what the right antibiotic is to treat that infection. There are some bacteria that are a little bit uh, different in the antibiotics that we can use. Some of them are a little bit more limited. Uh, Even within the same bacteria from person to person, you can have bacteria that are resistant to a lot of the more common antibiotics. And getting that urine sample appropriately is, is key. So a lot of parents will say, well, why can't we just like put a bag around them, uh, you know, over there, sort of like a little Ziploc bag with some uh, with some sticky tape uh, to it uh, to collect that urine. Uh, the reason we don't recommend doing that uh, is that you contaminate it with all those surface bacteria again, uh, that a catheterization, particularly in a younger child, is probably the best way. Now, if they're older, you can do use, you know, sort of, again, sterile technique to sort of wipe that area off that meatus, that opening of the urethra, whether they're male or female, and then allow them to, to produce some urine in a cup and then send that off uh, in sterile uh, uh, fashion to, uh, to grow, see if it grows out of bacteria. But that's the reason for doing a, an in-and-out catheterization on a, a younger patient. And, uh, you know, antibiotics, uh, that's a, it's really, you, uh, you know, 20, even 20 years ago, uh, you could really choose about two or three different antibiotics for urinary tract infection, and you'd probably take care of 95% of them, uh, even without having a bacteria that's present. Because of the resistant, uh, without having the specific bacteria identified yet, but because of the resistance we have to antibiotics uh, of certain bacteria now, uh, mainly from the overuse and or improper use of antibiotics, we've got a lot of problems now with resistant bacteria. Uh, the most common bacteria that cause urinary tract infections are called coliforms. So these are bacteria that live in, live in the colon, live in the GI tract. 
they are most of them are normal flora in there, meaning that they live there with no problems whatsoever. Uh, but when they get in the urinary tract, uh, in any part of the urinary tract, they can cause problems. The most common coliform is uh, E. coli. And uh, E. coli, again, normal in our colons. Everybody's got it. If you, uh, you know, uh, grow out a bacteria from the colon, you're going to find that in just about everybody. But E. coli can, uh, can certainly cause some problems with urinary tract infections. And be- again, because of that resistance, most E. coli are now resistant to some of the more common antibiotics, particularly amoxil, uh, amoxicillin, uh, ampicillin, uh, and, and other antibiotics as well. There are some that were commonly used in the past. Uh, Bactrim, although we don't use it in younger kids uh, for different reasons and side effects a whole lot, that's uh, becoming resistant. Uh, and even some of the cephalosporins uh, that we commonly use in the past, we have to be a little bit careful with the selection of those uh, agents just because of, of resistance. Uh, you know, your physician should be sort of, uh, they should be looking at these. One of the things we do uh, at uh, UMC is we look at the basic, the differences of resistance of different things. And there's a couple of apps out there, too, that your physician can take uh, take advantage of that look at the local resistance. Uh, and you can, there's one that's uh, called Bugs and Drugs that's actually pretty neat that uh, looks at samples from different sites, so you can look at urine bacteria from uh, about 100 miles away from wherever you are and see uh, it with a radius around you of about 100 miles to see what's the resistance, what kind of uh, antibiotics are working and what aren't for that particular bacteria from that particular site. Uh, but you, it does require a little bit more of uh, uh, educated guesswork in that to try to figure out what's going to be the best for your patient in treating them. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We're talking about urinary tract, uh, tract infections today. Plenty of time for your questions if you have them about this topic or anything else that's uh, affecting your family right now. You can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring that's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or send an email to kids at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after this break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy. We're talking about urinary tract infections. What are some of the risk factors? And got a question in the break. From right here at MPB Studio about uh, you know some of the things that you can do, and this is a question about a teenage daughter, and uh, she uh, the question was it, you know she really she likes to hold uh, she doesn't like to go to the bathroom at school, so she'll hold it all day long and then come back home and 
you know, sometimes those, there's things that you tell kids that may or may not have the evidence behind it. So the question is, does that holding your urine for long periods of time, does that cause urinary tract infections. So the evidence would not suggest that doing that, that holding urine for long periods of time would increase your risk of urinary tract infection. The one difference from that is, you know, if you're not, uh, if it's in the extreme cases, if you're, you know, a number one, it's not good for your bladder. I mean, that bladder can, it only gets so big and your kidneys, as long as you're hydrated, as long as you're still drinking plenty of fluids, are still going to continuously make urine. Um, so that's, you know, that's one issue, but, uh, if you, if you do get dehydrated so that the urine output, that the amount of urine that you're, you're making goes down, uh, you know, from dehydration, then certainly that might be a risk factor for urinary tract infection, particularly in smaller infants and babies, teenagers, probably not a big deal. Uh, and you can change, you know, you can train your bladder to do all kinds of things, you know, certainly, I know physicians, teachers, sometimes, you know, they'll go all day uh, just because you don't, uh, you don't think about it. You, you have to go. You sort of push it aside. you got another patient to see, uh, you know, and, and you may only go once or twice a day, whereas somebody else may go five to six times a day. Uh, those are all variations within the norm. And, uh, again, that bladder can do all kinds of stuff. Now, there are conditions in the young and old uh, that certainly could, uh, you know, cause some problems with the bladder getting filled up too much. Again, if you have spasm of those muscles or they're not emptying appropriately, certain developmental conditions that might predispose you to, to doing that. Um, so that would cause, you know, an increased uh, risk. But just holding it on your own, probably not a big deal. Uh, it'll drive parents crazy sometimes, but uh, other than that, uh, probably not not uh, contributing to it. So we mentioned a little bit uh, before the break about antibiotic choices, and your your physician, based on what kind of things that they get in the urine, are, are going to make a choice. Now you don't have to wait on that urine to come back. In fact, the you know to really get on a, a urinary tract infection, particularly in younger kids, can be a big deal. They can get sick fast. That urine. Uh, urine, urinary tract infection can spread to the rest of the body, through the bloodstream, to other areas, uh, and can be dangerous. So usually treatment within uh, 72 hours is important for them getting better. Um, if, they're, uh, if they're young and they do have you know, a first urinary tract infection, it's usually not a big deal. Uh, if they're less than two months of age, probably they're going to be treated with IV antibiotics first. Uh, and until they have some more definitive data on what bacteria and what particular antibiotic is going to work best by mouth. If they're older than two months, and particularly they're older than two years, usually um, you know, an oral antibiotic is going to be just fine with treating them. Sometimes your doctor may call back. They're not wishy-washy. If they call back and say, hey, we need to change antibiotics, that's probably because they did get that urine culture back. And it's not immediate. It usually takes about... 24 to 72 hours, uh, depending on the, the facility, to get that information back. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We're talking about urinary tract infections today. Waiting on your call for your questions, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Most of the time when we treat with antibiotics, we treat for about a week to 10 days. Uh, if it's something that's called a complicated UTI or urinary tract infection, that just means there's other factors in there that put uh, kids at risk for complications. Maybe they do have some abnormal uh, anatomy of how their urinary system is uh, put together. 
uh, or that it functions, then sometimes we'll treat them a little bit longer. There are certain bacteria that uh, dictate, you know, treating a little bit longer in length of time than others. Um, and and yeah, actually, in in uncomplicated, you know, five to seven days in most of the most cases would be a good uh, treatment uh, time period. But what about recurrent urinary tract infections? Mostly, we've been talking about things that just happen once uh, or or twice or rarely. But if you have recurrent urinary tract infections, then your physician may uh, suggest that further testing be done to try to figure out if you do have, if your child does have one of those complications. Um, and there are certain different tests that are used. We mentioned the urine test just to see if, you know, if you have uh, bacteria there. Usually on an uncomplicated urinary tract infection that's treated with, with oral antibiotics, uh, it's not recommended to, uh, to retest the urine later to get another urine sample, uh, it, you know, just with a run-of-the-mill infection like that. So that's not really needed. Um, if uh, they do have uh, recurrent infections, that might be so. Or if it's a resistant uh, bacteria to, to other antibiotics, that your physician may recommend uh, getting a repeat uh, test or if symptoms persist, a persistent fever, uh, you know that really need to you need to back up and look and see what's going on. Do you need to change antibiotics? Is there something else going on? Infection elsewhere in the body? Um, those are all you know sort of red flags to a physician. But what about imaging? Um, it, you know the things that your physician may get uh, on follow up. If they're less than two years of old and they have their first febrile urinary tract infection, uh, an ultrasound is one of the screening tools. And basically what they're going to be looking at with an ultrasound, this is just like the ultrasound you get when you're pregnant. Uh, it's a non-invasive test. They don't have to break the skin uh, to do this. It, it doesn't uh, expose anybody to radiation. But basically they get some good pictures of the kidneys and of the bladder. Uh, and this is useful, particularly if, again, if they have any changes to that architecture, to the way things are hooked up, uh, they can see that on there. And then it may change the, what they do uh, as far as any intervention. Uh, if they have a family history of kidney or urologic problems or poor growth, sometimes kids present with hypertension. Again, the kidney is uh, instrumental in doing that. Uh, then you may need a, an ultrasound of the kidneys or a renal ultrasound is another name for it. Uh, and then those that don't respond to antibiotics appropriately, if everything looks like it should respond and they're not responding, then that's a trigger maybe to get a, a, a test. And a renal a, a ultrasound is actually a pretty reasonable thing to do on a young kid, and it doesn't really cause any uh, any trauma to him. Another uh, another test, and there's a little bit of controversy depending on who you talk to. So you can look at the pediatric urologic guidelines. You can look at the uh, American Academy of Pediatric Guidelines and treatment pathways. A little bit of variation between here. But basically, if you have multiple UTIs, if you have two or more febrile with uh, UTIs, those with the fever, um, or if you have your first urinary tract infection, with an abnormal ultrasound, uh, with a fever uh, that's greater than or equal to 102, uh, and you don't have E. coli as the bacteria that's causing the infection. Maybe it's a strange bacteria that normally would not cause a urinary tract infection that you wouldn't see a whole lot. Uh, or those kids that do have poor growth, maybe they're not uh, growing appropriately or they may have hypertension. 
Then a, a, a test called a VCUG may be uh, recommended. So this is a, a voiding cystourethrogram. So the ultrasound tells us, you know, the sort of what the kidneys and the bladder looks like. So it's the anatomy. It's the architecture of it. Uh, it's like taking a picture in 3D. Um, the voiding cystourethrogram is telling us the function. How well is that urinary system emptying out urine in an appropriate way, and is it having any urine that's going back upstream when it should all be coming downstream? So they will look at uh, they will look at that, uh, and it, this is a little bit invasive uh, for the child. Most kids do this without any problems whatsoever. But basically, they're looking at the urine as it comes out of the bladder and seeing if it goes back up towards the kidneys. Uh, if it does, then they may have some problems, again, with the valves that are connecting uh, the ureters, which are those tubes going from the kidney to the, to the bladder, um, and may need a, a, a minor surgery to con- correct those. And it's fairly easy to do for a urologist, and uh, particularly in younger kids, but certainly something that needs to be looked at if they're having complications. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We're going to take our final break of the hour, but plenty of time for you to sneak in a question or two. It doesn't have to be necessarily about urinary tract infections. We can uh, tackle anything this morning. So give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. We'll be right back after this break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and we're talking about urinary tract infections and a couple of other things, some complications that might happen from that, and got a couple of minutes to talk about a topic that goes along with our next caller. Uh, we got Amy in Pontotoc this morning. Good morning, Amy. Hi. Thanks for calling. Thank you. I have a quick question. Sure. My son is eight, uh, will be nine pretty soon, and is still wetting the bed at night. At what point should a parent be concerned? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And uh, you know, bed wetting is we got a little bit of static there, so we're going to put you on hold just for a second while we uh, while we discuss or talk about that. So, you know, bed wetting uh, can be a common thing. Most families think, "Oh, my son's you know they're in in school now; they shouldn't be wet in the bed." Uh, there are some red flags. You know, if they, if they uh, usually the pattern is that they are uh, potty trained. Uh, both for urine and and for uh, for stool, uh, by the time they're about four to five, most kids would do that. But you can have a significant number of kids that are still having bedwetting uh, at night uh, while they're asleep. So by age five, uh, you still have about fifteen percent 
of kids that are still having in, inconsistent bedwetting. Not every night necessarily, but certainly they can have some breakthrough episodes where they have that. There are some risk factors for that. New situations, social situations, maybe you move in a new house. It doesn't have to be big dramatic things, but uh, certainly those can be triggers. Uh, even going back to school can be a big one. Um, if they sleep over at somebody else's house, there's there's certainly that's a risk factor. Um, the biggest things to, to look for, again, urinary tract infections are one thing that we frequently look for. There's other reasons that kids wet the bed sometimes, in the, and again, these are rare, uh, but we do look for them just to make sure we're not dealing with more serious issues. Uh, diabetes is one. Uh, so we'll look for, uh, you know, for at least get a urine sample and see if there's any extra glucose that shouldn't be there in the urine uh, or if there's an infection. Uh, there may be some other abnormalities with the urine itself, but that is common. Um, the first thing we do is talk about behavioral things that happen before that child goes to bed, uh, making sure that they're not uh, ingesting, you know, a, a whole lot of water before they go to bed. Uh, trying to limit uh, how long up until bedtime that they're drinking that. Certainly no caffeine. Uh, even sometimes with a lot of kids, you just cut out all the caffeine uh, uh, completely uh, just because of how it affects them. And then doing some tr- bladder training exercises. So actually having them hold, uh, you know, try to hold uh, their bladder control longer and longer throughout the day. It's training that bladder to do that at night if they're spending eight, ten hours a day at night. Uh, they may need to do that. And then in some situations, uh, bladder alarms work really well with retraining that. There are some sleep disorders that are associated with that as well. Uh, and then finally, there's some medication in some cases that um, that temporarily you can give kids, you know, over a couple of years span until they're over this. But it's, it's a frequent problem, uh, and certainly it can be a big social issue with kids. But I'd talk to your physician about some of that. But eight years old, still sort of common to have that every once in a while. Well, thanks for all our callers today. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from you, our listeners. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. Our call screener was Michelle McAdoo. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Join us next Thursday at 11 o'clock for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens and stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.